This podcast contains graphic details about a horrendous crime which may not be suitable for all listeners. Welcome to Crimes Without Convictions with Sabrina Salas-Matinani taking a closer look at criminal cases on Guam where in some instances justice may not have been served and crimes that have gone unsolved. This is Episode 2, Beauty and the Beast. Had a spirit that people noticed when they, when she walked into a room, she's beautiful, you know, but above all, when they got to know her as a person, they thought, wow, she truly was a wonderful, wonderful person. That was Liza Camacho Bigley in an interview with KUAM in 1997, remembering her best friend, Jennifer Mesa. She just got her life uh, shortchanged uh, by whoever did this. It was in the summer of 1987 when 16-year-old Jennifer was murdered inside her father's home along Mai Mai Road in Mangilao. This is probably one of the, the most gruesome homicides I've seen with Jennifer and uh, in Jennifer's case. And I've seen quite a few uh, in, in my time. And uh, But the fact that she was just a, a beautiful, like you said, innocent victim and she was looking forward to life and uh, somebody cut it short uh, it's not right uh. retired guam police department detective stephen cruz recounts vividly the day he was called to the scene at the time he was assigned to the guam police department's criminal investigation division and was the case agent for the mesa homicide and we arrived at the uh, residence of uh, ralph mesa uh, that was uh, down the hill from Department of Corrections. And uh, Ralph Mesa was a good friend of mine. And uh, pulling up to the house, uh, it wasn't a good feeling. And uh, we got up there and he was out in the outside of the house and uh, the patrol officers were there and some other units had arrived. And... Um, he was just, uh, he was in a big rage. He just grabbed a rock, a big boulder, and he smashed one of our uh, unmarked officials, the windows, uh, out of anger. And uh, what I was informed of at the scene was that uh, he found his daughter inside his house. She had been murdered. The rage by Mr. Mesa was understandable because of what investigators found when they walked inside was both heartbreaking and horrific. She was bound and gagged, and she had multiple stab wounds, and uh, she was found on the floor beneath, below the, uh, the bed. And uh, when we looked at the crime scene after everything, she was stabbed so violently that... Uh, the knife marks were in, embedded into the, the bed sheets. You can see the tears in it. And so that just shows you the anger and, and how violent that uh, the stab wounds were. And um, like I said, she was found below the, the bed. And we couldn't do anything as far as moving the body until Dr. Park got there. And uh, so when he got there, he examined the body. He eventually rolled her over, and as soon as she was rolled over to her back, 
first things out of Dr. Park's mouth was, oh my God, I guess he was also traumatized by the the wounds on, on uh, Jennifer at the time. So I, I, I just want people to know that uh, she was an innocent girl looking forward to college and uh, she was just brutally uh, raped and, and, and murdered. And uh, she, she wasn't involved with any drugs or anything or any illegal activities. Uh, she had just uh, moved in with her dad, Ralph Mesa, at that, that house. And um, she, she wasn't living there, but for the summer, she, was, she moved and stayed in with her dad. Jennifer was a student at an all-girls private school in Hagania. She was a model. She was a daddy's girl. In 1997, her father, Raf Mesa, granted an interview with KUAM's Grace Lee on her show, Island Focus. Had me wrapped around her finger like nobody's business. The case was still unsolved, and although painful, Mesa still shared the enduring love he had for his beautiful angel. You just wonder. I drive through Hagania and see the girls at the academy in their uniforms walking from the library to the pool and stuff. And think about Jennifer and her day when she was there at that school in her uniforms and days I'd have to go and pick her up from school or drop her off, that type of thing. I see young women in the grocery store with children on their hips and look and say, gee, would she have had children by now? She would be 27 uh, this year. I think about her at family, family gatherings. I know everybody does, and sometimes we speak openly about her and talk about the things that she had done or things like that. In order to cope or adjust to it, uh, what happened, the terrible parts of what happened, you have to block them out of your mind. And in doing so, you tend to sometimes forget things about her. And then when you forget those things, you feel a tremendous sense of guilt in that you've forgotten her. That's hard to do. She comes to mind almost every day. I carry something around with me that belongs to her. Or there's something in the house of all the time that belongs to her, obviously. But I carry her little phone book that she, she had in my briefcase. Starts and ends at that point. You start and you regress back from when she died back to when she was born. You start from when she died as to, and then to where she could have been or should have been or would have been. Mr. Mesa is no longer with us today. He passed away in 2015 with no closure and no arrest of the person or persons who killed his daughter. According to Detective Cruz, they ruled out all potential suspects and checked out all the leads that were provided to GPD, including a man seen in a pickup truck with a young girl asking about a riding mower. Then there was a lead about a motorcycle seen parked in the yard about 20 to 30 feet away from the Mesa home. Perhaps, though, the main lead was that the suspect or the suspects they were searching for 
might have already been behind bars. Yes, based on the proximity of the house, you know, being so close to DOC, uh, the work release program that was uh, in place back then, of course, we had to look into that and make sure that uh, we had that accounted for. And uh, we had a team that was designated to strictly go to all the job sites of these uh, inmates that were on work release and, and account for their, their, their timeline, which we did. And uh, there was nothing that, that uh, raised our suspicions at that time. You know, and um, but as years had gone by after her murder, um, we kind of discovered that there was a revolving door at DOC, and uh, it was hard to believe that inmates were being let out. And uh, we found this out when the treasurer of Guam got robbed one morning, and the um, we got a call that uh, there were several inmates that had not been uh, accounted for during a head count. They were nowhere inside DOC. So that kind of confirmed that uh, this may have been happening way before this treasure of Guam robbery. It's just that we had no solid proof or, and, and that was thoroughly checked out. We checked out all the guards. We checked out, you know, like I said, uh, the possibility and uh, Nothing, nothing came out of it, but our suspicions became stronger that it was an inmate. And based on uh, my opinion in my uh, crime scene, just the fact that uh, the way she was bound and gagged, I seen those kind of uh, uh, bounding uh, of the, the hands uh, from inside prison homicides uh, where they bound him in a similar uh, MO, you know, as far as uh, the way they handle her. And, and I believe that it was uh, inmates or an inmate that may have been responsible for it because like I said, she had just moved to stay with a dad. And uh, during the interviews, we found out that she was outside her yard uh, washing cars, I think the day or two before that. And she's a very good looking uh, girl, you know, and going that route there, a lot of the DOC inmates travel to and from Mai Mai Road going back to DOC and uh, I believe that maybe somebody had seen her and you know the talk may have started that there was a good-looking girl there and that uh, it got passed around to the inmates and somebody made a move. All we know is that he was walking up to the front door and I think somehow he probably startled Jennifer, knocked on the door. Uh, uh, like I said, there was a glass of water that dropped in the kitchen area by the door. And uh, so either she was getting water for, for him, maybe he was asking for water as a way to gain entry into the, uh, the house. And she may have gone to get the water, came back and he may have gotten into the house at that point. And that's how the glass dropped or she could have been drinking water and the guy came up uh, and just startled her and, and the glass dropped. But uh, other than that, uh, I recollect there wasn't much of a uh, ransacking or anything of the house. 
So I think the intentions was they knew, you know, that there was a female there and they went in and they, uh, they raped her and eliminated her as a, a witness that could identify who the perpetrator was. And, uh, and again, that's why I say, uh, that that's like a inmate MO, you know, they, they can't afford to be recognized and, and identified. So they got rid of Jennifer at that time. Like Cruz, a former chief of police, James Marquez, at the time was part of the Criminal Investigation Division in 1987. And he also responded to the Mesa home. To this day, I can still picture the whole crime scene. It was really uh, it's something else, you know. I feel for the family, especially uh, Jennifer, 16-year-old teenager, who had a lot of plans, future plans ahead of her. Student of the Academy of Our Lady, uh, just a young woman that had no clue that uh, her life would end it that day. And the way it was ended, is, it still haunts me. In fact, I used to get the goosebumps just thinking about it. You know? And uh, it was hard for the officers and the detectives also, who actually uh, had access to be in the crime scene. It was, it was terrible. God bless her, and I hope she may rest in peace. According to Chief Marquez, he was assigned to follow up on looking into the possibility that an inmate or inmates could have been involved with the murder. It hindered the, upper, uh, the uh, operation because uh, it was like we were mentioning with Barry and I were talking, it was a revolving door. Yeah, there is no. Uh, there are logbooks that are supposed to be maintained, check-in and check-out of inmates. And it didn't help at all. I mean, the logbooks weren't being maintained. And that really uh, threw a monkey wrench into the investigation. It was more than just a wrench. It was the entire toolbox because for years, the murder case, like so many others, went cold. It was in 2004, under the leadership of former Chief of Police Frank Ishizaki, a cold case unit was established. Their task to investigate all unsolved homicides, and in 2004, there were a total of 97 cases that were never closed. Sergeant Barry Flores was one of the officers assigned to GPD's newly created cold case unit. What we have to remember as a community is we have code case files unsolved and the murderers are still walking about us. Uh, I know we investigate a lot of cases as a police department and uh, regular thefts or burglaries, but these are killers that walk among us. And if we don't ever put them away because of what they did before, they still walk among us. And that's the, the most heinous crime we have in the department or any police department. And to leave it unsolved or just have it go cold is uh, something I really want to work on. And you're right, a killer still walks among us. Yes. Maybe if that person yeah. has not died, because this is 34 years ago. But when you got the case, you started looking into the files and reading the notes. Um, what in your mind, um, I guess, what were you thinking, like who you thought uh, killed Jeffers? Well, we have to go back to and understand uh, a homicide. When a homicide occurs, of course, I wasn't here during the Jennifer Mesa back in 1987, Chief. I, I wasn't here, but as I understand homicides, when a homicide occurs, there's several avenues you have to look at 
to track down your suspect or suspects. Uh, you have to have a gut feeling or some understanding of the case or what transpired. And hopefully you pick the right avenue to pursue. Because if you pick the wrong avenue and you use up the 48 hours that's necessary to bring justice to that, that particular crime, your trail gets cold on another avenue you overlooked. Uh, and in any homicide, you, of course, there's several avenues to pick. Uh, I believe in Jennifer Mesa, they, they were on track to an avenue, but may not have been the right avenue. Uh, I know in the Jennifer Mesa case, when I read the case file, <clears throat> right off the top of my head, there were five different avenues to pursue. Maybe more, but I, I counted five. And I know we went with the DOC revolving door policy and the detectives at that time pursued that particular angle. There were several others they were trying to investigate, but mainly they focused on the DOC revolving door policy. As I'm not sure if that was the only angle to pursue, but <clears throat> that's the way they went back then. And uh, the other avenues were just left pretty much unchecked. While Sergeant Flores says they may have gone unchecked, Based on the investigative notes and reports, the avenue detectives pursued at the time also led him to the Department of Corrections. There was an inmate, uh, offhand, I don't remember his last name. Uh, he had very vital information. Um, when I studied the case file, this inmate was interviewed on two separate occasions. Once with an FBI agent and a GPD task force officer assigned to the FBI, FBI at that time, interviewed this one inmate. And a year later, two GPD officers in the criminal investigation section interviewed the same inmate. And what I gathered from their interviews within the case file that this inmate interviewed by, on two separate occasions, gave his verbal testimony of the incident as he recalled it. And his testimony was so similar and on point at two different times. I felt he had a lot to do with it, or he was there. So they were on the right track. It's just that I think because you don't dissect the cold case file like you have the time to do it, I think it was overlooked. Um, if they had just compared both interviews of the same person a year apart from each other, they would have brought that person back in to, to go further with the interview. Because like I said, his accounts of what transpired, to me, uh, he's there. He's one of the perps if not the perp himself. His accounts of what he told us happened matches the crime scene which GPD never put out on into the media. But the evidence in the case file, only the purple perps would know what happened that day. So having read that, having said that, you believe then it wasn't in me? I have a strong feeling towards the fact that that inmate knew more, um, as if, like I said, I, I think he's probably there. Yes, there are several you know things he said.
during his interview that I see it in the case file, but it never went further than that. When you were talking about uh, the inmate and he was interviewed twice, mm -hmm. um, when you were in the cold case unit, did you go back and interview anybody else? Or did this Let's put it this way. Um, back in March when I looked at the case file, um, I, I took a step further and I, I found out what this inmate was. He was no longer incarcerated on Guam. For some reason, he was in a penitentiary in Missouri. So I uh, contacted Missouri and found out that he had, uh, he had, he was deceased. And I tried to find out where his personal belongings were because I wanted to take it further for DNA. Um, but um, because he had deceased way prior, a couple months prior to me even inquiring about it, um, I could never, never follow that lead, but uh, I would have wanted his uh, things for DNA to find out how much of a role he had in it. And like I said, because DNA wasn't available in 87 and wasn't really known to Guam in 95, but that's when it came out mainland style, um, would have been worthwhile to, to know about DNA. And I learned about DNA maybe in about 2000. 2003, 2004, and got really interested because the scientific side could play a big part in solving the mystery. So let me ask you both this then, do you feel that um, this murder, it involved more than one suspect? It was a very good possibility. Or do you feel that the inmate uh, that you tracked down in the, the penitentiary in, in Missouri, you know, deep down you feel he was the murderer. He, he was, to me, he was, he had some very good information that for me could possibly place him there at the scene that day. Because, you know, it, it kind of goes in line with what um, Steve was mentioning uh, regarding the uh, crime scene and what he saw with regard to the, uh, the victim, Jennifer, that she was bound. Um, and he noticed that the, uh, whatever was used to tie her hands, the, the manner in which she was tied and I guess the knots um, were similar to what you would see if there was a, a murder in prison, just the way that it was tied um, and uh, how whoever did this to her wanted to make sure that she, you know, didn't survive because the suspect couldn't afford being identified. And so that's why when you say it could be, you know, kind of leaning towards it might be, maybe it, it was. Serena, let me tell you something. If you got a hold of the uh, forensic evidence, it would tell you about whether it's a single purpose or multiple purpose. Because so you of, had access, was it, do you believe it was a single perp or multiple? I read the case file. Okay. So, do you believe it was a single perp? I cannot answer that right now. I don't want to jeopardize the investigation. Do you believe that um, if it was multiple perps, 
that they could be at DOC or walking among us. I don't think they ever tested it to find out. I don't think they ever obtained uh, the DNA samples to find out if the purple actually exists today. That we didn't have the capability then to. That's, that's why it's very important to establish a cold case unit and, and take it further. As it stands now, 34 years after Jennifer Mesa was murdered and more than 100 other unsolved murder cases, GPD does not have a cold case unit, leaving families like the Mesas no closure, just crimes without conviction. For Jennifer Mesa, I, I feel so bad for you, um, Jennifer, because I've seen the crime scene photos. I know you suffered like hell going through that ordeal. Um, based on just the photos, whether they're black and white or color. Um, I'm sorry we never brought your killer or killers to justice as of this day. I just ask the community if anybody out there um has any information on any any unsolved case or current case, please get involved. It could be your child, your daughter, your son, your husband, your wife. You know, we need to hold hands and get together as a community and let's bring peace to this island. Families need some kind of closure and um, they'll, they'll never rest until the day they die, uh, uh, like in Ralph's case. and. Um, and just knowing that nothing came about, we, we weren't able to solve it. Uh, it, it I, I just still can't deal with that uh, emotionally. And uh, and I've seen Ralph Jr. Uh, a couple of times and I've gone up to him and, you know, what can I say? But, you know, uh, I'm sorry that we weren't able to move forward and, and close this case for before your dad died and everything and uh but you know hopefully something will generate out of this uh, story that you're doing and uh you know if you can close one cold case you know with a, an arrest and a, a conviction then it, it this is a big success and, and hopefully uh you can do more than one but just one in itself would be a, a very big success. If you have any information about the murder of Jennifer Mesa or any unsolved murder, please go to the Guam Crime Stoppers website at guamcrimestoppers.com. I'm Sabrina Salas Matsunani, and this has been another episode of Crimes Without Conviction.